Welcome to the special edition podcast to highlight the VIDM on the 5th of May 2022. The VIDM is an annual free online 24-hour conference celebrating International Day of the Midwife on the 5th of May. The International Day of the Midwife is a day where people across the world celebrate and recognize the work of midwives. It's a free 24-hour online conference where participants from six different continents join together to network and share evidence-based research. Rather than providing a passive education comprised of videos and online e-learning, the VIDM is an interactive conference using web conferencing software, which allows the delegates to text chat with each other throughout the sessions, to participate in online polls, and to ask questions directly to the speaker or other delegates in a synchronous way. In today's episode, I am delighted to welcome and introduce you to one of our keynote speakers, Hermine Hayes-Klein. Hermine is an international birth rights lawyer with extensive experience advocating for the human rights of birthing people around the US and internationally. She's represented midwives in administrative, civil and criminal legal proceedings and advocated for their right to work with autonomy and security in many states and nations. She also advocates for birthing people who have experienced informed consent violations, racism and obstetric violence during childbirth. Hermine, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a little bit about what you're going to be speaking at at our conference this year. Well, so so I think something that we can talk about is that one in three women that are coming into obstetrics, you know, if not more, are, have experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault at some point in their lives. We know that statistically. And that is a trauma that women, many, many women are carrying into pregnancy. And so if we know that, then if we know that the number is so high because sexual violence is, is tragically so prevalent in so many societies, then first of all, it's safe to treat to approach every woman as if there's a significant likelihood that she is carrying sexual trauma. And then if you understand that, then what does trauma-informed care, what does it, where does it have to start? It has to start with respect for consent and her ownership over her body. How are you going to not re-traumatize her? You're going to not re-traumatize her by not touching her body without permission, by not touching her genitals without permission, by not disrespecting her about her intimate parts of her body in any way. So what does that look like? It's actually very easy. It looks like following your nation's law of informed consent and refusal, but really following it, not treating it like the only job of informed consent is to, quote, consent the patient by getting her signature on a form, but skipping the real conversation that you're supposed to be having with her. Informed consent bioethically and legally mandates a conversation that is all about actual consent and connecting with the human being that you're serving, because informed consent requires you to look them in the eye, tell them what you want to do and why, tell them what the alternatives are to the thing you're proposing doing, talk about some of the, the actual material risks of the thing you're proposing and the risks of not doing it, the benefits on all, on all sides, and answer, say, hey, what do you think? Do you have any questions about that? Really listen, really answer all those questions. And only after all that information has been exchanged so that you understand them better through their questions, they have all the information that they need, then you say, so is this, is, this, is this what you want to do or what do you want to do? And the, and the person, the patient gets to choose. That's consent, that's informed consent, and that is trauma-informed care because that's not going to re-trigger somebody that has been steamrolled about their body in the past. Steamrolling about their body again is what's going to traumatize them again. And that's what happens in L&D every day, labor and delivery. That's what happens in obstetric care every day. And the fact that that stuff happens every day, that informed consent. So essentially my job as a lawyer is addressing the fact that we have a significant gap between the law of informed consent and the culture of obstetrics, basically worldwide. Everywhere that obstetrics has been shaped by the West, it, is, um, it has failed. It is existing in a pre-feminist state that fails to fulfill the obligation of informed consent toward birthing patients. And so really, again, what we're addressing here in these legal actions is not the law. We don't need new laws. I don't stand for the position that we need to do, write new laws that name and address obstetric violence, because why should we need to do that? We've got the law of informed consent. What is obstetric violence? When the women to tell their stories, their stories of consent being violated. And often consent is violated 
you know, because of an overlay of discrimination, that's another human right that is frequently violated in maternal health care and that increases the um, likelihood that consent will be violated. But that ultimately it's that violation of consent and ownership and respect for the body that leaves women traumatized. And so then that gets us to this phenomenon of the unassisted births, right? Which, as you say, here in the United States, it's been that trend has been increasing in the last decade. And as you say, with it, that the phenomenon of the quote radical doula showing up to sit with that woman while she births at home without a midwife or a doctor. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are so many women doing this? <laughs> are they all crazy? Probably not. So what's going on? What they're showing us is we know that's not safe. We know that shoulder dystocia happens and that other things that can happen that, that you, that woman can really wish someone's there with her. Why doesn't she want anybody there with her? What her choice shows us is that she feels that it is safer for her to give birth at home without a trained professional than to give birth with any trained professional she can identify. <laughs> and when the professionals see that happening in their, in their community, what they should start meeting and talking and looking at is themselves <laughs> and the way they're practicing. Why don't women feel safe coming to us? And in the case of midwifery, what they're going to find is because their hands are tied from practicing true midwifery. If the midwives are free to do what they're really, what's really, they're really trained to do and what they're bioethically obligated to do, to do consent, to do non-abandonment, to figure out how to get that support on board for each woman as she needs it, women aren't going to be afraid of their midwives. But what we know, and this gets us to the to, to our need to actually to advocate for midwives, is that the way that midwifery is regulated, circumscribed, fit into the healthcare system in different systems very often ties midwives' hands from being able to provide that trauma-informed care, provide that evidence-based care, provide that informed choice that so, that so many midwives came to midwifery because they were committed to being able to provide. But the systems that they're in are preventing them from being able to do it. What's going to change that? Advocacy, collective advocacy by the midwives. So um, there's so many things we could say about unassisted birth. One thing I would say is, um, you know, midwives can do that work. I mean, I think any provider, doctor or midwife that is working in a system that ever asks them to violate a patient's rights should turn and push back on the system. So, and that's, for example, any case of C-section for anything, your baby's breech, you're having a C-section, your baby's twins, you're having a C-section, prior cesarean, you're having a C-section. Nobody gets to say that because the right to refuse surgery is a human right. In the United States, it's a constitutional right. Nobody gets to tell a woman, nobody sh should be able to perceive themselves as having the power to tell a woman that she is going to have a surgery that we all know increases her risks of dying in childbirth four to five times, increases her baby's risk of dying. Where, where did we go wrong that so many of the professionals who work in obstetrics feel that they have the power to tell a woman that she is having a surgery and that she has no option for support for vaginal birth, even though that is literally their job to stand by a woman while a baby tries to come out of her vagina. And they're saying, no, we won't do that for you. The only service we will offer you is surgery. This is very, very wrong. And the fact that it is happening on such a widespread basis should make it unsurprising that so many women are leaving that system. Because even if they walk into the hospital and they're not being forced into a surgery, something might turn. And if these people don't understand her rights and they don't understand their obligation with respect to her rights, she might find herself getting bullied or forced into a surgery. And that risk is so significant because these hospitals literally have policies saying C-section for her, C-section for her, that the women know that this is a real risk. And if they don't want to be forced into a surgery that increases risk for them in this pregnancy and their future pregnancies, they've got to look for another option and their options suck. So they're ending up at home with a doula. I've been talking to doulas, right, for years now and telling them, don't do it, doulas. Very, very stupid doulas, because guess what? If that baby gets stuck, you're going to use your skills and you're not going to know how to do it. And then you're going to get blamed, you know? And what I came to realize, Karen, is like, if they're going to do it anyway, because I keep coming and showing up for them, they're doing it. And they're doing it because it's their, it's their radical commitment, just like midwives, just like so many midwives. Their, their ultimate commitment is the women. They're there to serve the women and they're not going to abandon them. So my counsel to the doulas has shifted now from just don't do it. That's really dumb to consent. 
write that out. Make very clear in writing what your role is and what your role is not. And understand the risk you're putting yourself in and what this will mean for you if something goes wrong and you have a little bit of knowledge of how to solve it, but not a lot. That's actually a dangerous position to be in. So, um, but again, the, the fact that it's happening is a reflection of what's going on in the system. And back to what can midwives do to shift that system. Again, it's like I've talked to doctors who work in their hospitals and they work very hard to try to, for example, get women that right to vaginal birth after cesarean and or breach vaginal birth. And, and they're put on the spot by their colleagues. You know, they're marginalized, they're endangered, and midwives are too. And, and then I see these same professionals trying to defend, oh, no, it's, there's some evidence basis to me allowing the baby to come out of her vagina. No, turn on them and point the finger back. Excuse me, are you all comfortable forcing women into surgery? Can we please get out the law of informed consent in our jurisdiction and read it together? Push back, go to that hospital. And, because again, it's like the problem here is that, is that the violation of women's rights is so widespread that it has become the standard of care in obstetrics. <laughs> it's become standard of care to violate patients' rights. But what's wonderful and what is key to my advocacy in this area is that informed consent is not a human right that doctors get to wave through making a new standard of care that ignores it. That's not how informed consent works. So for example, you know how to do many medical things, how to do the mammogram or how to do the hysterectomy. These are things that are set by standard of care. Medical procedures, even midwifery procedures are set by community standard. You do the thing the way the other people in your community do the thing, because that's how we do the thing, right? Medical activity. But informed consent is not like that. Informed consent is a bioethical obligation that rests on the shoulders of every single individual provider toward every single one of their patients. It is a duty of the individual provider to the individual patient. And therefore, it's non-waivable because it's the patient's right that the doctor or the midwife has an obligation to uphold. And it is not something that the profession can redefine through practice because they all have that obligation straight to their patient. But none of this is understood within obstetrics and within hospital cultures. And it's only going to become understood if we keep saying it over and over again and standing up for those rights. So in a way, in order to stand up for the rights of their patients to trauma-informed care, midwives need to understand, first of all, that care, trauma-informed care and care that makes women willing to stay in the system and actually trust the system is care that respects women's ownership over their bodies. It should not be too much to ask. And at all times, including when they're birthing a baby, we're there to serve them. We're not there to take control of their body for a few days and give them a baby at the end of it. We're there to serve them medical services in conjunction with our bioethical obligations. And then understanding that is part one. And then part two is understand that the right, the patient's right to consent is a human right. And that any, any policy, practice, pressure that that midwife receives from any colleague or, or our hospital is illegal. And it's, it's putting her between a rock and a hard place because it's making her have to choose between pleasing her colleagues and violating the human rights of her patients. And her colleagues should not be forcing her to do that. So I think that that kind of pushback is going to be essential for this to change, but there's plenty of support for that from the professionals who do understand uh, the law of informed consent and how it is supposed to apply and can be committed to helping make that cultural change. You know, you've just brought up so many issues that are so vital. And I think my question listening to that is that, and you might be surprised to hear this, but the cesarean section rates in South Africa is one of the highest in the world. We're currently running at about 70% in the private sector and the excuses given are because of the increased risk of litigation. Yeah. We know actually a, an elective cesarean section carries more risk than an elective vaginal birth. How is that justified to do that if you are worried about the risk of litigation? Oh, I would love to answer that question. So first of all, there are, you know, Doctors have been saying for years now that fear of litigation is what forces them to impose a surgery on birthing patients that increases the risk of death for that patient and their, their, their babies and their future babies, right? So 
first of all, let's look at that, that claim. Now, fear of litigation or liability incentives should incentivize safe care, right? So that's so fear of litigation, you should know that you're going to be sued if you're not careful, if you're drunk while you're doing a surgery sort of thing. Um, and if you don't accord to, you know, if you do things in some weird way that causes harm, if you do things according to standard of care, um, in a straightforward way, you should be safe from, from liability. So if we have, if we have, if doctors are claiming that there is a liability incentive that the law, the law, the legal system is forcing them to impose treatments on women, on birthing patients that they don't think those patients actually need and that increase those patients' risk of death. What's going on there? What are they saying about the law? That the law is forcing them to increase their patients' risk of dying and violate their patients' rights? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So there have actually been a, lot, a whole many scholars who've looked into the issue of, is it true that liability is in fact the driver of the C-section rate? That, that issue has been explored for, for years, for decades now. And those studies come back and they show in fact, no. Perception of liability is often quacked about by obstetricians, but no, it's not fear of liability. It's not litigation that's driving it. What's driving it are financial incentives and time convenience incentives. And some combination of those two things impacts not only the providers, but the institutions that then basically make those providers give all those C-sections. The institution benefits financially for all kinds of reasons including longer stays in the NICU for that baby, for that nice, safe cesarean. Um, and, uh, and then the provider, even if the provider is actually paid the same for the vaginal birth or the C-section, they benefit from the time convenience incentive, from the perception, from the feeling of control over the delivery, which just feels much more comfortable than, um, than a, you know, for many providers, than a uh, physiological, than the, than the so-called chaos of a physiological delivery. So the studies have shown us pretty conclusively that this is more of a myth and a story than it is a reality. And that in fact, the reality is much more about money and time convenience. Um, and, and, but again, whether it's liability, time convenience or financial incentive, what we should all be able to recognize there is that what they are saying is I'm giving her surgery because it's better for me. All right. And when we look back, so, and that includes liability, I am uncomfortable from a lawsuit. Lawsuit doesn't feel good to me. I might have to pay more. So I'm going to give that person right there a surgery that might kill her, that might kill her, that might lead her to an embolism. All right. And so when we look at that, when we look at the fact that we're even accepting that claim for a second, we can recall the history of obstetrics. The how the hell did we get here? Why did we get into a standards of care where women are burning on their backs with feet and stirrups when that was never going to help them? That was never going to help them get their baby out. Oh, when we look into it, we find out it was never about the women. It was about the convenience of the providers. And when we look at so much else about how did these standards of care get set, we find out it had nothing to do with the well-being of the women. It was only ever about the convenience and the preference of the providers. And that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> so when we look at the fact that we should never have put them on their backs in the first place, that they should never have been put on their backs, they should have been from the start supported in what they needed to actually birth a child and have medical backup if they needed it there, which would have meant that the obstetric wards would have been set up for squatting from day one, would have been set up for a woman who was mobile from day one and would have known how to come in and help her when she needed it from day one. But we didn't do that because it was never about the women. So fast forward, you know, a century. Here we are saying, guess what? We're cutting babies out of three quarters of the women coming through the door and then sending them back with a ta-ta because of our quote liability incentive. And I don't want my insurance premium to go up. And so when you look at it that way and understand that that's in fact what is being said there, what we can come to is something that I like to ask and that I will certainly bring to our conference presentation, which is what, you know, when we, when, what happens, because when, really when they point to liability or other kinds of systemic dysfunction, they're saying we have a system dysfunction problem that is causing us to give suboptimal care. And in this case, to perpetuate a C-section pandemic on birthing people throughout all for-profit obstetric systems, for sure. Right. So again, like the fact that it's the private sector in South Africa that has the high C-section rate more than the public sector, 
it points back to what the studies are showing. You know, I, I remember driving through Soweto with my friends in Zila Sayepi, and she pointed to two giant hospitals on either side of the street. And she said, see that one there? That's the private hospital with an 80 to 100% C-section rate. And see that one over there? That's the public hospital. They've got a maybe 40 to 50% C-section rate, but obstetrics violence for everyone. And they can say, oh, but we're tired and we're overworked and we can point to the system function. And that's very important because we have to look to the system dysfunction to solve the problem. But the way that the conversation usually goes is, well, the reason we're hurting all these women and cutting their babies out, et cetera, and, and you know, giving them five cesareans if they want to have a big family is because of these system dysfunctions and our fears around that. So what I would like to point out to the providers and the hospital systems and everybody who um, sort of holds that space for that is what happens if we take the violation of the human rights of birthing people off the table as a solution to system dysfunction? What happens if we do not allow the violation of birthing people's human rights to be the conclusion to what we're going to do about our systemic dysfunction? Because what human rights are supposed to mean is that they're never violated. Mm. Human rights are non-negotiable. You don't get to violate them just because your system dysfunction. So if you take it off the table, if you recognize, if you dare to flip and recognize, we do not get to violate the human rights of birthing women. That's not an option. We don't get to cut their baby out because of our fear of liability, right? So since I don't get to do that, what are my other options? What's left is solving the system dysfunction, right? That's the only option left. And guess what? As long as you leave violating the human rights of the birthing people on the table as the solution, you don't have to deal with the systemic dysfunction. You just drug on year after year saying, we've got to put EF, you know, electronic fetal monitor on every woman, even though we know it doesn't work because of our fear of liability. We did it last decade. We're going to do it next decade too. But even though we know it doesn't work and it's leading them to surgeries that increase their risk of death, because it would just be too hard to deal with the systemic dysfunction. And guess what else it would be? Inconvenient for the providers. I do believe that fetal monitoring is, is, is very responsible for the high rates of interventions. We know it is. We know it is. Because we know, as, as um, I spoke with a lawyer, his name is... Um, uh, Thomas Sartwell, S-A-R-T-W-E-L-L-E. He's probably 90 now. He worked on lawsuits involving EFM for decades until he retired. And then he decided to start writing articles telling the truth about EFM because he had read every single study that existed on this machine since it came out in the 1960s. And he, he can tell that story well about how the only studies that had been distributed when it came hit the market were issued by the manufacturers <laughs> and there were 10,000 th distributed throughout the U.S. before the first studies that came out that weren't from the manufacturers and those made clear from the mid-1970s this machine does not do anything for low-risk women to reduce the incidence of death or cerebral palsy for fetuses all it does is drive up the c-section rate and it's been showing never, nothing else ever since right it might have some marginal benefit for certain high risk cases but not for that average low risk person who without a scarred uterus that comes in for a first birth it should not be used on her as he put it if you had a smoke detector that was wrong 99% of the time that it went off at predicting a fire you would recognize that that machine did not work and you would get rid of it why don't we do that with EFM because it's not it has nothing to do with women and babies. It's a labor-saving device. It's a labor-saving device for hospital systems because they can have one screen in the center, one nurse looking at six screens instead of six nurses monitoring six women with a Doppler. That's why it's used, even though we know it doesn't work, but it's sold to women on a lie. That's the thing. Give them the option. Say, you know, we've got this machine. It's much more convenient for us. We'd really rather not have a nurse have to come in here with you. So would you mind, you're not going to be able to move. It's going to be really inconvenient. You're going to be uncomfortable. It's really going to take you out of labor land and you're not going to be able to like go through the physiological process, but it would be much more convenient and cost-saving for us. Would you wear this belt for us? <laughs> you know what, we'd like to put you on your back. And it actually creates a significant risk that your baby's weight will press on your vena cava. And then it's going to look on our that belt you were, you're wearing for us, like your baby's distressed, and then we're going to cut your baby out. So, and it's, it's going to be really painful for you. And you're definitely going to need an epidural if you lie on your back, but it's much more convenient for us. Would you do that for us? <laughs> Sadly, many women would probably say yes, but at least give them an informed choice.
and it will always be justified. Those actions will always be justified. Um, the amount of times I hear women who have been spun a story, the opposite of what you've just shared, you know, right. uh, where it really is framed as helping you and being the right thing mm -hmm. for you and right. using the fear. Factor. Just like those C-sections. And then they are so grateful to the doctor and the hospital and the NICU right. that cost them a fortune. But, right. you know, it was so, such a good thing. I had a cesarean, you know, and my baby did have to spend three days in the yeah. NICU. But imagine if I hadn't have had it. Well, baby wouldn't have Imagine if I hadn't have had it. Women are victims days. of fraud. Women are victims of fraud. And the reason that these frauds can be perpetrated on them is because they're ignorant about childbirth. Childbirth should be taught in sex ed. That's also work that midwives can do. <laughs> get childbirth into the schools so that by the time women get to pregnancy, they're not so ignorant that they come out of it saying, well, I had a C-section, but I couldn't have possibly assessed whether I needed it or not. Yeah, you could have. <laughs> you just needed to know a little more than you do. Absolutely. And I think trust their knowing and yeah. be confident enough to have the conversations that you've just shared, you know, right. um, about asking those questions and being able to share the evidence for, you know, care without electronic continuous fetal monitoring to right. be confident enough to need that because the perception is that if I have electronic fetal monitoring continuously, mm -hmm. something will be picked up and that's more, that, that would mean more. And right. that's going to be better for me and my baby. So the, the perceptions are also yes. wrong around that. Right. And, but that's to trust your knowing and midwives, you know what I mean? Who can teach women that they can trust their knowing, even if they didn't learn birth and sex ed midwives can. And, you know, and, and the, then the, what I, the, the next question that comes up is, but do the midwives have enough time with the woman to be able to? And that gets back to, does your system of care allow you to do midwifery? You know what I mean? Like, do you, or, or does your system of care treat you like an L&D an nurse in a busy hospital where the, a, there's a strange woman, you've never seen her before, and you've got 10 minutes with her. And, and, you know, and this is your only contact moment with her. It's hard to help a woman like that to trust her knowing because you know nothing about her and her, her sense of trust in herself. You're still in the best position to help to just remind her that she's been living in this body till now and that she feels what's going on inside it and that she's your best source of information for what's going on with her and her baby and that you trust her, you know, but again, it's like if your colleagues make you feel that you're vulnerable if you relate to your patients like that circle back to what's going on in your system and and look at is it actually allowing you to give the kind of care that's going to enable that trust between you and your patients well, i think just as we were chatting earlier and about the rise in unassisted births there's yes. also a rise in midwives who are leaving the system because they realize they cannot function within that system and then either working off grid or off the radar. Right. They become those radical doulas they're, exactly. or they're the radical midwives attending the, the women, but, which are needed. but when they don't have the support of their system, they are needed. Well, cause women need midwives, but those midwives deserve to be supported. You know, when, a, when a midwife's work or any birth is being basically treated like a crack deal because some administrator or bureaucrat doesn't like this woman's choice. We have a problem. Exactly. Nothing should ever happen in secret when it comes to childbirth. And if it's happening in secret, it's not the woman's fault and it's not the midwife's fault either. I've seen enough cases to know that. If it's happening in secret, everybody that caused that woman to feel that this had to be a secret should blame themselves. And the one person who stood up for her, that midwife, should not be vulnerable. She should be protected. Everybody that made her put her in that situation. Midwives are more vulnerable. The, the shittier a system is treating its women the more vulnerable home birth midwives are because you are a walking indictment of what those obstetricians are doing. Those obstetricians are committing a crime upon those birthing women. And when you have a 10% C-section rate, you know, they have to paint you as dangerous because they have, you know, all those women coming out of birth thanking their doctor for their C-section. You know what I mean? That whole lie, you're, you explode that lie. You know what I mean? So that's why the, the midwives in that system, if they ever have a bad outcome, which of course they'll, any maternal health provider will inevitably have a bad outcome because that's birth, mm -hmm. then they come down on it like a ton of bricks and try to say, oh my God, look, look, look. They ignore the fact that you have better outcomes than them by a long shot.
especially when you measure six weeks out, et cetera, from those C-section wounds they caused. Um, but, and they, they try to, and the media gets involved and they have to. The more that you have a culture that is upholding this ridiculous C-section story, the more that culture is gonna blow up on the front page any bad outcome home birth story because they need to in order to sustain the fraud that they are committing on women in that system. Absolutely. And you know, it's a global yeah. issue. I mean, I've just mentioned it's a global issue from South Africa, but it's a global issue and it's happening everywhere. And I think you touched yes. on it earlier as well, because midwives, there's so many different um, certifications and so many certification programs that differ and vary around the world as well. But at the end of the day, we're all midwives and we're all doing the same yes. thing and we're serving the same people, having the yes. same procedure or this, you know, they're all giving yes. birth and we're the same physiologically all around the world. So yes. it really doesn't matter. Amen. Yes. That one way I like to think about that, Karen, that, that I've really enjoyed in my work, you know, with human rights and childbirth is like, you know, childbirth is a physiological process that is universal. We are mammals and um, and our human rights are should be universal. Right. We're human beings. And yet you take the, the, the physiological process and you take the human rights and you plug it through each culture and the way that it it spits out, <laughs> you know, maternal health care at the bottom is shaped by the culture. And so we have these similarities and differences, you know what I mean? So South Africa is, it's both, both, it's not special to have this ridiculous 70 to, you know, a much higher C-section rate in the private section and obstetric violence in the public sector. This is something that's being repeated everywhere, but the particular flavor of the way this story is playing out over the last century is South African. You know what I mean? What it means to take, you know, black South African women into the hospital and, and then start to commit this violence you know, this is what Zenzelia has been addressing through her work in South Africa and, and you know, how it, it interweaves with class and race and money, you know what I mean? And who's in control and who sets the standards. This is your unique story, which is why ultimately the solution will come from within South Africa. And at the same time, you can draw upon those studies from all over the world, showing, blowing up the liability story, showing the link between profit and the C-section pandemic, talking about trauma-informed care, for example, to try to make these transformations. But it is, it's very interesting to see the way culture affects this. And even, for example, across Europe, um, you know, the, the way that closer to the Mediterranean, where you have cultures of more machismo and, and they're more sexist and patriarchal, you have more abusive maternal health care systems. Basically, around the world, the better the social, political and economic status of women are, the better they are treated in maternal health care and the worse their position, the more vulnerable they are generally economically, socially, and politically within that culture, the more they are abused within childbirth, as you would imagine. But because no culture, I mean, has eliminated patriarchy altogether, we've got no perfect maternal health system, not even New Zealand, <laughs> although they're on their way, <laughs> you know, but, and, and again, the, the, the stronger the status of women, the stronger the status of midwives and the, and the better the quality of care worldwide. And that's why Northern Europe, you've got stronger midwives and better care. Southern Europe, you've got weaker midwives, meaning they're L&D nurses that can't even deliver the baby. They got to call on the obstetrician and worse care, higher C-section rates. It's all measurable by the status of women and the status of midwives. We, we stand back and we say, wait a second, human rights are not something we get to ignore. And so what happens if we take the violation of our patients' human rights off the table as a solution to our discomfort, as a solution to our liability premiums, as a solution to our dis systemic dysfunction? We don't get to violate their human rights. So let's stop. Let's stop. What happens if we stop today? Which relates to one of the questions I like to ask, how much would change in that labor and delivery room if it was really clear to everybody in the room that nothing could be done to that birthing person until someone looks them in the eye, tells her what they want to do and why, tells her all the risks and benefits, all the alternatives, answers all her questions and has the conversation and then asks her what she wants to do. It would be transformative of that room. And the fact that it would be transformative tells you a lot about the status of informed consent in maternal health care today. It, it's actually not rocket science. We know what informed consent is supposed to look like. We know we're not doing it. Uh, it's just about doing it. Do it, you know, and I'll walk it through. What is informed consent? This will be early in the presentation. It, you know, I have my three-part, my three-pronged informed consent. It's inform, advise, support. Inform is objective information. Here's the information. Because you, as you know, usually they're conflated, inform and advise. I'm going to tell you the information that I think 
goes along with my advice for you, what I think you should do, right? That's not informed consent. Informed consent is first informed. Here is, you know, what I want to do and why, because why is what, here's what I see your clinical condition right now. Okay. So here's what I see to be going on with you and your clinical condition based on my training. All right. So here's what I see going on. And so here's what I see as solutions for what's going on. We could do this. We could also do that. It's an obligation. You have to tell them all the other other things you could do. And that has to include doing nothing. And here are the risks of these things. You have to tell them the material risks and you don't get to lie. Mm. They've been lying. Mm. (laughs) You don't get to lie. Mm. So tell them the risks. Again, this is objective. So you get to put your ego on the table, take it off the table for a second during inform. So here's, here's objective information about your alternatives and their risks. Now my ego gets to come back in and I get to advise you. So here's what I think you should do and why. Okay. And that's cool. That's wonderful. Tell them what you think and then support. Now you get to choose. What do you think is best for you? And informed consent asks providers to recognize that their best choice might not be what you think their best choice is because in Informed consent allows people to make medical decisions on the basis of their values and their big picture perspective on their needs. You don't know their big picture perspective on their medical needs or any other needs. You only know what's right in front of you right now. They know, which is why you have to give them all that information and support to make their best decision. There's no coercion in that. Otherwise, you're not doing it anymore. You've stepped off of informed consent and now you're bullying and abusing. (laughs) There's no manipulation. There's no misinformation. So again, it's just doing what we're actually supposed to do, not doing it wrong, not ignoring it and not skipping over it. Does it always involve a signature? Uh, No. I mean, it only involves a signature. The only purpose for the signature is memorialization for, for the convenience of the provider, to be honest. It's for you that you get the signature. Your obligation to them is to make sure they get to make an informed choice. And then if you want to make sure that it is memorialized that they made an informed choice, get their signature. And for midwives, you know, basically the more controversial the choices that you're supporting your client in making, the more important it is to document. Because I want to protect you from the attack of your colleagues when they say, I would never would have allowed her that choice. That's when you remind her, well, guess what? She had a right to make the choice and it was her choice. So they don't get to come after you and say the witchy midwife played the Pied Piper and led her to this birth that poor little innocent lady didn't understand the risks. You document that stuff. When I'm advising midwives who support out-of-hospital breach, or for, I mean, I understand why women choose out-of-hospital breach and twins in large part because I've spoken to the women. You know, they just... They just want to give themselves a chance and that nobody's going to give them a chance at the hospital. And that midwife shows up who's willing to give them that chance. She's got those skills. She's worked hard to maintain those skills. She's in a terrible position because she can't count on perfect emergency backup for her and this woman, which is awful. That all needs to be documented. And so, you know, in those high risk, you know, quote unquote, high risk controversial decisions, I will counsel the midwife, not only to have that conversation with the woman, but then to have the woman write out in her own handwriting her understanding of those risks and then to sign. Do more than write it out and have her sign. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, so yeah, that documentation is important for your protection, particularly if you think there's a risk that you might be attacked mm-hmm. by colleagues later for supporting the woman in her choice. The violations that happen every single day in hospitals are never highlighted, but the one communication right. that happens outside of the system is... Correct. Is, is made into a blockbuster. Correct. And, and understand why they're doing that will get you, I mean, the solution is to go on the counterattack. <laughs> yeah. I'm so tired of seeing midwives like begging for people to understand that they're safe. Please, are you kidding me? After what's getting served up to women at the hospitals you've just described or that we talked about? Where do you see it going? I mean, based on the work that you're doing and you've become more and more of an advocate for midwives, for doulas, for birthing women, where do you see it going in the next 10 years? Mm. I, I see that we as a humanity are at a crossroads and that our crossroads with our environmental situation reflects our crossroads with childbirth. Uh, so that just as with the, the planet, we will either transform fundamentally, we will either effectuate a paradigm shift or we will, or things are going to get very, very technological for us. <laughs> our relationship to nature is going to go away because we're just going to let it go away. And our, you know, we'll either just all die or we'll live on spaceships or we will not be able to live on the planet as we have, as our, our ancestors have enjoyed it anymore. If we want to enjoy this planet as our ancestors have enjoyed it in any kind of way, just enjoy the nature that it offers us. 
we have to act quickly because we are way off. We, in the last 250 to 300 years, we got very dramatically off course. We created huge amount of harm to our planet. And if we don't stop now and reverse course, we're not going to make it. Those scientists are right. And the evidence is all around us. Similarly with childbirth, we are at a crossroads as reflected by the changes we've seen in childbirth in the last 25 years, right? Since the explosion of the C-section pandemic. So what I see happening here is either Childbirth will transform in a way that makes it truly woman-centered and actually serves the needs of individuals. We will have humanized human rights respecting maternal health care systems that do what informed consent, what informed consent would actually, if it was being followed, what it would create are maternal health systems that anticipate variability. So they would be prepared to serve the wide variety of needs and choices of birthing parents from the high-tech births, you know, that want all the interventions to the lowest tech births and everything in between. And, and we would have lots and lots of midwives, you know, because we need more midwives to meet that variability and that stuff like that. We, we're going to either see a world in which women's place becomes what it should be and the patriarchy ends <laughs> and women and men are partners, you know, in, in humanity or, and this comes back to childbirth, I, I see us, um, getting to a place where the baby is conceived um, artificially and grown in a pod. We have already developed that technology, as you probably know. It's already being experimented on with animals, where you grow the whole baby from the conception in the test tube all the way until it is, quote, harvested. And they'll be saying about pregnancy what they say about home birth now, which is, why should we endanger your baby for your pregnancy experience? Why would you be so selfish as to risk the baby consuming all the dirty things you eat and drink, your stress levels, and we can't even see it. It's buried inside your body when we could have it in this nice clear pod, fed this nice, perfect nutritional fluid, make sure it doesn't get any of your yucky stress, and then we can harvest the healthy baby at the end. That is absolutely a way that we could go with maternal health care, and it wouldn't be maternal health care anymore, would it? It would be reproductive health care. It's a really, really, really scary wow. thought, and I know it is a possibility. It's, we, we either go back to the heart or we go away from the heart. Like, and that's what got me into it was when I read Ina May's Guide to Childbirth and she described oxytocin and adrenaline and the role they play. And I was like, oh my God, you mean the foundation of life is really love or fear? It really is like what drives us into this existence is the choice of love or fear. It's really like that. <laughs> it is, it is like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God, why are we creating systems that switch the love to fear? Why are we creating systems that make the mother afraid and the baby afraid? Why would we do that? Why do we create a system that a baby would be born into fear? Born, born afraid, born, born afraid, violent, taken afraid. away from its mommy, spend its hours and its first moments of life afraid, and she's afraid? Why would we do that? Instead of wallowing in the misery of all this fearful birth, we can all, what, I, what I like to do for myself to keep myself you know, positively focused in doing this work and taking on all these upsetting stories of abuse of midwives and women is coming back to what we want to see. What we want to see is a system in which that does obviously what nature wants, which is love, love all around it, love, you know, and and as midwives know, you know, that's why the few obstetricians that get to see a midwife led home birth have their minds so blown because they get to see a birth in which love was really the driving energy all the way through the whole thing. And when, you know, midwives have seen what it looks like and the women like myself who gave birth with midwives know what it looks like. And when you know what it can be and what it feels like for the mother, for the baby, for the partner, for all the providers in the room, when that love bubble spreads, you know, it comes in from the provider to the woman and baby, it goes out from the woman and the baby to the providers, you know? And it's like, that's what we want. That's our birthright, you know? And, and it's like, we, the sisters have to stand up. <laughs> And that's why I love midwives so much because midwives are like concentrated women. That's the way I think about it. You're like women concentrated and in all of our strengths and all of our vulnerabilities and our, in our scarcity comp and the way we hurt each other in our horizontal violence, you know what I mean? In, in our power. And, and so midwives, and that's what drove you to this profession. So I feel like midwives and doulas who also love women, but of course, midwives, like, you know, you are change makers and you are, you face pressure 
because you are women loving women in, in a world that isn't sure it wants to make space for that. But just stand strong, stand strong for in your integrity for the work you do and why you do it and reach out to your sister midwives. And I know they let you down a lot of times. Find, keep reaching, find the other midwives. You know, you're not alone. That's why they're all coming out of VIDM. Not just in, in our hospitals and in our communities, but midwives connecting yes. globally. We have this technology available now to connect yes. around the world. I mean, the VIDM is a beautiful yes. example of that, of bringing speakers from around the world and, and participants from around the world. Yes. Um, and, and I do believe that if we're all the midwives in our little communities are doing what we know to do and what we are driven to do, we're born to do yes. in many ways, that will have that effect. Just like you said, you know, baby's born with love, it goes out into the community, yes. it goes out into the world. We will yes. all, if we're all speaking, and we are, I know we are, we're all saying the same thing. We all have the same, that's why we do what we do against all odds. Yes. It has to, I hope, I hope, I hope there's enough of us. I hope our voice is loud enough. I hope yes. our actions are big enough yes. to make sure that we don't go over that edge that you spoke about where we completely lose the human aspect of birth and slip into just pure technology and sterile care. Yes, you won't. Because it, when that happens, you either stop being a midwife and you're now something else within that system or you leave the system and become the radical midwife. And, you know, it's just like, just that pressure on your heart. Like once you midwives start to feel like, Ugh, you know, it's like, you know, when the laws of your system make you have to choose between the, following the law and following ethics, something's wrong. Something's wrong. <laughs> the Which law should make you follow ethics. Are. Oh, many midwives are. Anytime it's tying your hands from respecting her choice, it's making you choose between law and ethics. If you have to break the law to support her informed choice that you know is actually not totally unreasonable for her. And even if it is, she gets to make it. And the system shouldn't abandon her. And it shouldn't make you have to choose between being the one person who doesn't abandon her and then the system abandons you. Exactly. No. I yeah. mean, it's always about choice. If that's all it is. Yes. And consent. You know, choice and, and owner, autonomy. Choice, autonomy. consent. Those are just about, this is my body. I live in it. I've got to keep living it. I'm going to mother my babies from this body. How am I going to get through the birth of this child in a way that I can live with it? I'm going to come out of feeling ready to mother this child, ready to mother this child. Because, you know, we should talk about that in the beginning of trauma-informed care. Absolutely. You know, it's not just that she carries the trauma, as you know, as all midwives know. It's that when she comes out broken, the impact on her mothering of that child is huge, which is one of the things that makes it such a fallacy for them to say, we're just looking out for the baby. We're just looking out for the baby. No, you're not. You're looking out to make sure this baby is alive at the end of this day. Look longer. <laughs> We all want it alive at the end of the day. There's more than one way to get it alive at the end of the day. And one of those ways is going to leave her traumatized and one won't. My guess is that there were a lot of traumatized women. Like the only way you wouldn't be traumatized going through a system like that is if you were so passive that you had no preference at all. You know what I mean? That you were just like, whatever you say, mm -hmm. if, you, if you're working up here at all, you know, you've heard those stories of the women that were like, I don't want to be asleep. My baby's coming out. And then they yeah. gassed her. You've heard yeah. those stories. Yeah. Trauma. I think, I think what's happening now is that at least feminism has gotten women to the point that they voice their trauma, are starting to voice their trauma, are starting to. And, and, and again, it's like, especially when it's caused by the people that she came in there to trust and count on. That's the worst. In her most vulnerable moment of her entire life. Like with these women who come to me, the keyword is helpless. They weep, they, they sob years after the birth. They sob talking about the moment when the midwife talked them into the induction. You know what I mean? And the, and the way that conversation went, I, I've talked to clients who sob every single time they talk about the conversation. I should say this, you think it's no big deal? It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal that she said to you, well, are there any risks to my baby being induced at 37 weeks for a mildly elevated blood pressure? No, babies just do better out than in. That's not information. That's misinformation. <laughs> you know, and, and then being, and that sense that 
I don't really have another choice. They want me to make this one choice that they're telling me to, which is, as you know, how informed consent goes most of the time, right? Which is, well, we want you to make this one choice. We'll gloss a little bit over if there's any other choice, but really downplay it. And then make you feel like you're choosing the choice we chose for you. And, and, the, every, and the midwife walks on feeling just like that was fine. And I'm working with the women who are sobbing three years later, you know, and at, about that same conversation, it matters because these are the women that they wanted so much to make a good choice for their baby. And, and you know, of course, the birth played out horribly. You know what I mean? <laughs> In all of these cases, it was this wasn't good advice, you know. And again, it's like if she had actually chosen for that care. I can't tell you how many women who have said to me, if they had taken 15 seconds, 15 seconds to tell me that they wanted to use that vacuum, that they wanted to use those forceps and why, if they had just taken that, I wouldn't be sobbing on my floor every night. <laughs> you know, communication matters, but it's not just tell her why you want to do it. It's treat her like a human being who thinks and gets to choose and know that it's her choice, not yours, no matter how scared you are. So it's always so wonderful to talk with others who get this stuff and care about it as much as I do. Thank you. And to be able to share it. I'm so pleased that you'll be speaking for us at the IDM. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. You know, when you get the global midwives together, as you're doing with BIDM, to encourage them to reflect on how has my culture shaped my sense of empowerment as a, mid as a woman and then as a midwife? And then how does that shape the way I react or the dynamics I have with these OBs at my hospital? How does it shape the way in which the female OBs have masculinized themselves and think that they're higher than me? You know what I mean? How does gender and sex in my culture actually affect the status of midwives in my in, in, in maternal health care, you know, because of the gendering of like the, the masculinism of obstetrics and the feminism of midwifery then reflects the status of men and women, right? So the, the wider that gap, the wider the gap between doctors and midwives, the narrower that gap, the more they're going to be equals. You know what I mean? If men and women are equals, doctors and midwives are equals. And because one of the things I love to talk about is the shift to, to patient-centered care and woman-centered care is such a great opportunity for, to recalibrate, again, that paradigm shift because patient-centered or woman-centered care has all the providers in a circle around the woman. It's not about a hierarchy, a totem pole, you know what I mean, with doctor up here and then midwife and nurse and woman's down there sort of thing. Patient-centered care has the woman. It's a, it's a, it's a constellation. Yeah. It's a constellation with this woman as the sun and, and we're all working together, you know, and, and that's, it makes so much more sense. Everybody has their expertise. You know what I mean? Everybody has their role. We're all important. It's not about who's higher, you know, and, and yeah. So I think that that kind of reflecting and somebody helping to bring those reflections to this um, conference could be wonderful to, you know, and, and really helpful for the midwives, give them a new lens to think about the way these dynamics play out and these advocacy plays out in their own nation. Thank you so much. And you've brought us so many things to think about. Yes. No, you are. We need all we all need to be working together, it, yeah. both within our nations and worldwide, because there's not that many of us, as you know. Well, exactly. <laughs> Well, okay, we'll be day. in touch. Okay, bye, bye Karen.